Explore the history, relationships, expertise, and data that go into ensuring Stein growers get maximum yield potential. This is the Stein Seedcast. Here's your host, David Thompson. Hello, and welcome to the Stein Seedcast. I'm your host, David Thompson, National Marketing and Sales Director for Stein Seed Company. We've got another great episode lined up with special guests, expert insights, and discussion on everything you need to know about maximizing yield potential. On today's episode, we welcome back Tyler Dubay, soybean technical agronomist for Stein Seed Company. Welcome back, Tyler. Hi, David. So last time Tyler was on here, he discussed what sets Stein apart when it comes to soybean breeding, development, and genetics. Now today, Tyler's going to home in on his expertise to help us crack the code on soybean scoring and evaluation. From gene markers to resistance and tolerance, Tyler's going to talk about everything you need to know about decoding soybean scores. So let's get started. So Tyler, I know you've been on the pod before, just maybe for a little bit of quick background, maybe run down a little bit of your background with Stein, just again, for for our listeners. Yeah. So, well, I was born and raised in central Iowa and... I got uh, thrusted into the ag world by my mother (laughs) at the early age of 14, you know, doing pollinating and detasseling and had experience in the nursery and yield trials all within that for about nine years up until I graduated college. Then I went over into the production research world, did that for a couple of years. And then I called Chuck, who I've known ever since I was a little kid. He played hockey with his sons and know his family pretty well. He would always tell me about Stein and encourage me to come on over. <laughs> so I, I took him up on that offer uh, after college and joined the soybean research group for two and a half years and had some awesome experiences, had some fantastic relationships. Ended up going to another company partially due to my wife. Uh, wanted to start a family and that, that was over in Nebraska. So okay. Stein didn't have any footprint over there at that time. Yeah, went over to a large large seed company, did production research for them within their corn production world, and then uh, made a transition back to soybean and was with a small company, food technology company, that mainly focuses on seed composition and ran the R&D operations for them. Finally got a hold of Chuck again because I kind of missed the, the Stein world and the Stein <laughs> culture. And yeah, I'm, I'm back and... I came back in March, and it's like I never even left. You know, a lot of the people are still here, and I still have those fantastic relationships, and I look forward to still having great experiences with Stein in the future. Well, great. And, you know, the nice thing is the role that you are in now is kind of a new new role, but it's exciting because I think it, it serves as the bridge between what's happening in research, uh, you know, soybean research and, and to some extent corn, and then what moves to commercial or, you know, sales and marketing side. And that's a great resource for us to have to be able to, to, to get information about what's coming through the pipe and what's the next thing's coming. So the reason I want to talk to you today, I want to talk a little bit about, uh, you know, one of the things that we do on the sales and marketing side, of course, every year we, we create a catalog and we create the website and we have all this information about the products that we're going to be offering to growers in the current season. And one of the things is sort of the bellwether always every year is the process of developing the catalog and putting out the scoring and the information so we can tell the story of those products and what those products do for our customers. So I want to talk to you a little bit about, you know, the process that that the research group goes through in developing the scoring for those products. And we're talking about 
agronomic or uh, characteristic scores, right, as it yeah. relates to diseases and other physical characteristics of the plant. So I wonder if you talk a little bit about the process of how that is developed and maintained and, and all as it relates to scoring of soybeans. Yeah, so... Uh, first and foremost, we're a yield company, so <laughs> I'm going to attack one that. One score above all else, Yeah, right? one score <laughs> the, to, to rule them all. Yeah. So, yep. <laughs> so, you know, on the Stein catalog, we don't put raw yield data on there. You know, we put percent of trend. And percent of trend is how it does against each test of the elite trials. And so when you see a product that has a percent trend of 106%, that means it did 106% better than all the other checks. When, when I say checks, I mean we have Stein internal commercial checks. We have all sorts of other companies that we work with and that we're competing against within those tests. They beat all that by, 100, by 6%, right? And so that just shows how superior the yield is with that product within a whole national level, right? So we don't look thing we at Stein we don't within our testing program we don't look at things on a regional level. I guess you can call it a regional by maturity group, right? Because we test products within their desired maturity group right. in their maturity area, but we do as many locations across that maturity zone as possible. And so we take that data and we we tell them how the performance is on a national level. And so. That's one of the main thing. Well, that's actually the main thing that's published within the percent trend, and that's how we really select that what goes on and what's moved forward. And that's a great point for a couple things. One, the idea of, of presenting it as percent of trend. One harkens back to the fact of the just the testing program itself, and we're always measuring against the best things that are out today, yep. right? And so showing that percent of trend is important. Two, it's also relatable. I think more relatable as you go across the United States because you know what passes for an exceptional yield number in one part of the United States may be just so-so yeah. <laughs> uh, in another part. And so we have to understand these are all relative, right? So if we start talking about this product did, you know, in this particular neck of the woods, did great at 44 bushels, someone's going to say, well, that's terrible. Yeah. <laughs> um, but we have to understand what it's like in that particular area and what their yield trend is normally. And so presenting them as a percent of trend, I think, is a much more even-handed way to do that. And you mentioned 6%. I was just curious because in, in my experience, that's how I've looked at it. As we look at these numbers over the years, putting together the catalog, 6 is actually the point where we start to look at it. I, I look at it and say, ooh, that one is really, one. really good. You, yeah. know, you know, it's always good to have 102, 103, 100, whatever. But to me, in my mind, always 106 was always the number like, oh, now you're getting into... Yeah, you know, you're you're pretty, the real deal. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> exactly, exactly. So that, that's a great point talking about percent of yield. And you talked a little bit about looking at things, you know, in maturity range. And I want to talk about that real briefly about you know a, a concept we call widely adapted material. Because when we, I know when when I've been at farm shows, we get we do get questions from growers who will say, "I know you do all this research all over the United States, but in reality, all I really care about is what it does right here in my home county." And Trying to explain why that's probably not the right way to look at data is sometimes challenging because I know yep. to them that's very localized and that's what's important to them. But I wonder if you speak a little bit about the idea of widely adapted material, why that's important for us to look at those that way and not be putting things in a catalog that say, this is an exceptional product if you live in this 
quadrant of this yeah, state. County. Given, <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah. So why do we why do we look at widely adapted material? Well, you get more data for the most part, and you get more environmental. So within breeding, you have G by E. So Gen- genetics by environment interaction. Uh, G- well, it's actually genotype by environment interaction. And so as you spread that across the Midwest, the U.S., you know, all the maturity zones and stuff like that, you have more power within your data and you get more environmental influences that you can actually say this is how it produces. And th- in the worst case scenario, this is how it's producing within that environment. Within the testing program, we don't go after soil types. We don't go after, you know, specific things because we want them to be, like you said, widely adapted. And if it comes up that it experiences a derecho that happened, you know, two, three years ago, and they're standing straight up, that has way more power on a program level than by saying, oh, this does great in the Northeast County and Cook County in Illinois or something like that, you know. Yep. I can understand how the farmer feels about that because everybody wants on-farm experience. And I encourage them to do it, you know, maybe buy a few bags and and test it out, give it a good trial. One of them is going to do better than anything on your farm. So I would say that we are a big picture program and we want stuff that's highest yielding across the whole entire United States because that's going to be the why. It'll be... Uh, the best suited for poor environments. Well, and, and the other thing I think that I always think about is is the fact that the probably the biggest variable in that equation for the farmer is the thing they don't control, right? It's the environment. Yeah. And when we test these things across, you know, 30 or 40 or maybe 50 locations, yeah. the chances are that that hybrid or variety has seen the whole Everything. gamut <laughs> of, from drought to too much water to a lot of heat to no heat SDS, to whatever you know, all, all of these things. things and so if it's over 50 locations if it has risen to the top then most likely that means it's just really good genetics no matter what you're going to do to it now does that mean one product that particular year isn't going to do better no that's not no. not fair to say so you might hit the jackpot right you pick the right product for that year not knowing anything about what the weather's going to do but the fact is if you pick the things that are widely adapted or best as widely adapted, then you would think that the probability, as Harry likes to say, the probability is that you're going to get the best return. Right? right, right. And, you know, that's actually a really big thing now in the industry is you have big, big companies saying, this hybrid will do this on your farm and it'll create a prescription and all that, all that stuff. And it'll tell you exactly how it's going to perform on your field. They're not, they don't know that. That's all prediction and stuff like that. You don't know if it's going to be a drought year <laughs> the year the you know in a few months if you go through and there's going to be a drought year or what's going to happen within that cuz within a field you have microclimates and it, the it's all about how the genetics interact with that microclimate and there's no way to really understand it unless you put a really big science project together <laughs> and and even then that's not widely adapted so <laughs> Yeah, to your point, that prescription is, is okay up until the point that no one knows what the weather's going to do. Exactly. So that's, that's still a 
pretty big hole in your yeah. in your prescription. So, <laughs> so anyway, we talked about you know this idea of, of looking at things across a wide area, and I'm assuming when it comes to designing or or, or coming up with the various uh, scoring that you do on the various characteristics, part of that is is looking at these across all these different geographies, right? So that's exactly right. So how does that process work? So you know we have tests that we put. So I'll just use IDC as an example. We have 49,000 plots up in uh, Minnesota, northern Minnesota, that we know a field has IDC experience. And so we we took all of our elite material is in these plots, and we know that IDC is present within this field. You don't know how bad it's going to show up, so you do multiple replications within that field just to make, increase your odds of actually getting that, that variety to express or get to experience that IDC program. And then we use scoring, you know, from drones and from people walking the plots. Like I mentioned, we have plots for IDC up in Minnesota. We have an SDS plot. There's no algorithms generated for sudden death syndrome from an evaluation standpoint. So I'll more than likely probably head over there and do the scoring for that. Sure. And then, you know, we work with multiple different universities to do, again, SDS scoring just to get a, an external viewpoint on it. And we work with... a. Also, university for a white mold as well. They give us their scores. They say guarantee, but you can never guarantee anything, you know. <laughs> but, you know, they give us scores with how our varieties do within their white mold testing. And so we use that and produce scores for the seed catalog every single year. And so, you know, some of them, I just looked the other day, some of them have, you know, upwards of 150 data points. <laughs> of, you know, IDC or, sure you know, like I mentioned, you have one location, you have multiple replications of that test. And so you get multiple scores for one single year. Yeah. So it's a lot of different data points we're looking at. And, and, and one of the things, I think, to your point, some things are uh, maybe a little more predictable in the sense like I, IDC is a good example where we, we know the interaction happens with pH and some of that. And so we can't guarantee there's going how how bad. how bad it's going to be, but we can have a fairly high probability. We know we can put plots in areas where we've historically seen the issue. Now, I would assume not all diseases are that way. Some some of them are less predictable than others. Yep. And so, in those cases, it makes it harder to get scoring. I've I've told farmers before. I said, you know, the year that's a bad year for you is actually a good year for the research team <laughs> because it's very hard to score something when that problem didn't really occur in That's a given exactly year, right? right. Yep. So you don't want to wish bad things to happen, but at the same time, you need some eyes on that to be able to have some you know, predictability on it. That's right. And you need to get generate scores. So that that's the best way is and kind of in our well in our last podcast, you know, we talked about naked seed, right? We want them to experience the worst case scenario so that we know how well they yield out of it. So yep. But yeah, no, going on to the disease stuff, you know, to adding on to scores and items like that, you know, we do use marker analysis and stuff like that as well within the within the catalog. And so, you know, stuff like Phytophthora and and items like that, you can pick out markers and so you don't necessarily need to do field testing for that stuff. So So in the cases and that's a good point I was gonna ask you about. So in the case of Many of these, like let's use Phytophthora as an example. When you look at the catalog, you see a score, right? We've assigned some value to that for each of those given soybean lines. Now, it may be that 
particular line has a gene, RPS gene, yep. or whatever, 1A, 1C, 1K, whatever. And in those cases, that means you've done a marker analysis, right? Yep. And it is detected presence of a of, gene. Of the gene, yep. And so in that case, we consider that to be resistant in some form. Correct. Now, as you look down through the catalog, you'll see products that don't have necessarily an RPS gene associated with that line, but there's still a score. So that is what we would call a tolerance score. Is that right? Yep. And that's derived from just observation? Yeah, that's all based off of lineage and observation as well. Yeah. Okay, so the starting point is, you know, what are the parents, how, how did they handle it, and then looking at what it did in a field environment based on, again, where you saw it. Whether, right. whether it occurred or not depends on how well you can, you can score that. But yeah. that score is sort of a combination of what we expect to be, you know, the lineage coupled with what we've seen in our observations as we go through those plots. Correct, yeah. Okay. I've noticed over the years of, of doing the catalog, there seem to be more instances now where we have a lot more cases of either resistant or susceptible, whereas we used to score something as, we, we used to assign a numeric score to something, and now more and more of these you know, categories are, you know, I think Brown Stemrot's an example where now we're, we're, you know, you no longer see a numeric score, you just see resistant, resistant or susceptible. Yep. Is that something that's happening because science is able to find more of these markers so we're able to better predict these things? Yep. Uh, I wouldn't necessarily say it's by prediction. It's just more of a yes or a no, I would say. <laughs> so science has been able to d derive the test where you can test for the presence of a gene. And exactly, yeah, because... Because you know we, with within the program, you run thousands of different markers, or on a sample, and so you can detect you can detect within those markers if there's a presence or not. And so if there's not, then then you know for sure. Okay, well it's a susceptible, and if there is, then it's a resistant and it's proven, right? Yeah. And so it, it's actually more objective, like a yes or a no aspect, rather than a. Uh, tolerance, which, like you said, you know, it's okay. Can you tolerate it or not? <laughs> so, right. It, it may affect it or it may not affect it, and how, it, the only question is how much, right? It's it's more of a yes or a no now. So I assume when these products are are sort of initially released, uh, I mean, again, they have this scoring that, that isn't. I mean, obviously, like I said, it's based on the lineage, also coupled with what you've seen in in the testing, which has certainly taken place over the last several years. As years go on and the products, which you know none of them last tremendously long in our system because we turn so many generations, but as years go on, are these scores reviewed annually and looked at and revised yep. as needed? So. Yep, yep, they're looked at every single year. We review these scores and the markers, and even like on a lot, I shouldn't say a lot, but we won't release anything that isn't isn't high quality. So, but I will I will preface this in saying it isn't changing the way that we're breeding. Because we're so focused on yield, we're going to if it's not in the if the marker's not there and it's high yielding, then we're going to keep moving forward with it. We don't let markers determine what's going to be crossed, right? So a lot of talk nowadays is marker marker assisted breeding. We do use that more as like a guideline, right, to see if if there's anything interesting going on, but we don't use that as a guiding light. To say, oh, if this is an RPS, 
gene and this one doesn't, or if it doesn't have an RPS gene, then we aren't going to cross it type of thing. Does that make sense? Right. So you don't use it in the sense of saying, you know, if, if something doesn't have XYZ characteristic, we're just not even going to Right. Deal with it. We're not. It's not going to go in the parentage. It's not going to be used in the breeding program. Right. Whatever. Yeah. Because you may ultimately get rid of something that's doing exceptionally well. Correct. Yep. And so we don't hold ourselves back by that. Like always, the focus is yield. And if it's a high yielding parent and it doesn't have an RPS gene, we're not. We won't throw it away. We'll still cross on it and still generate offspring for that. You know, I wonder if. Maybe an example of that is something we see with soybean cyst. I know over the years, you know, we've done a lot of work to get a lot of SCN resistance yeah. in the lineup. We've got a you know whole bunch of products that are doing exceptionally well with resistance. However, over the last you know few years, I think we've seen the rise of a set of products that don't really have what we would call a marker for cyst resistance, and yet they continue to do well and they come through our program and. That might be an example where if you if you set a hard line and said we're only interested in you know things that have you know gene resistance, yeah. now you're just cutting out you know these products. Yeah. That, so like yeah, perfect example. Like if if something doesn't have a peaking SCN you know trait, then we and it's high yielding. Like we we may still continue testing that you know until it actually shows it. If it shows itself to be the highest yielding thing, then you know we may not be afraid to keep it moving through the program. So that's kind of one of the unique things about the the soybean program that I appreciate is that <laughs> they're not a they don't close any doors. You know, it's it's they're extremely focused and uh, they let the data speak for itself. Well, and, and like you said, I think the idea is not going in with any preconceived notion other than the one. Right, we're yeah. looking for the highest yielding. That's right. And then once that's made that cut, then you start to say, okay, now that we have made that cut, now let's go back and see what <laughs> what else does this product have to offer besides yield, which was the really the driver that we were after all along. Yeah, so. yeah. And just to add on to the marker conversation, you know, it, the markers have they haven't changed our way of working, but they have changed the way people breed. Right, and so it helps people understand how we keep getting higher yielding, higher yielding products. You know, you may ha- you may find certain mutations that you didn't even know about. You know, because you run all these different markers and you map all the whole genome of the soybean plant, you may find something extremely interesting, and you may just take that and run with it. You know, but sure. markers, from my understanding, the way they've changed. The industry is they've helped us understand what's going on within the plants, and some companies have taken the option of you know taking and running it with it with marker assisted breeding, where they use it just for straight decision making, which you know it works for the most part. But that's not our main focus. Our main focus is keeping products moving forward <laughs> with high yield. And so, right. if the markers don't tell you that, some some companies just won't even entertain that. And again, that goes back to the idea that if you if you're going to automatically start culling the herd yeah. right out of the gate, I mean, what are the chances that you're going to throw away something that that has some exceptional Uh-oh. value or performance? Extremely uh, simply by some you know sort of arbitrary decision that you made there uh, based on what gene or it does or doesn't have. So Yeah. So thinking all about all this and how these things get scored, I guess I, I wanted to ask in your opinion, is is scoring these products more art or science? I'd say it's more science. Okay. It's more science because you're letting the 
you're letting the data. Well, I guess as you start using more technology, yeah, it's it, you're letting the data speak for itself. But you know, as an agronomist, when you go out to when you go out to the field, it's it's kind of two different ways. You know, you look at it from a testing standpoint, and then you look at it from a diagnosis standpoint, from an agronomy right. perspective. I would say, from agronomy perspective, it's an art. You know, you yeah. to figure out what's going on in a farmer's field and help them come up with a solution. That that's definitely an art. But when it comes to testing and scoring, it's definitely a science-driven function, and probably more so today. Like you said, in in you know the previous podcast we did talking about some of the work being done with drones and yeah. imagery, and then us talking about you know gene markers for things like resistance. Seems like there's a lot more you know sort of super objective analysis in this, you know, whereas maybe it wasn't that way, no. you know, 20 or 30 years ago, right? But, yep. but now uh, there's less shadows in all of this, <laughs> isn't there? That's exactly right. <laughs> but no, it, it keeps getting interesting. And, you know, just like this year in 2023, you know, we're finding all sorts of different weird things going on. And I, I, that's the impressive part is that we're always learning about the plants and the environment. And so... It, there's definitely a crossover, at least in my opinion. So, <laughs> had an agronomist one time tell me, "I've been in this business for 30 years, and you think I have 30 years experience? I only have 31 year experiences." Yeah, <laughs> and that's kind of kind of true, especially yeah. when it comes to developing products. So, thinking about again, you know, for the context of what I do, we develop these catalogs and all this information for our growers to understand the relationship of these products. A couple questions that come to my mind that we get from time to time of information that's in the catalog. When we talk about soybeans, there's a category of indeterminate and then determinate. I uh, wonder if you talk a little bit about what that is, because we have people who often will ask us, like, well, what is that? What exactly does that mean? Yeah. So, Essentially, in layman's terms, indeterminate means that the plant doesn't stop growing when it flowers. And so as it gets to the flowering stage within the soybean life cycle, a determinate plant will stop growing. It'll, well, I should say not stop growing. It'll stop vegetative growth. So it'll kind of stall out where it is, it'll, you know, height and size, yep. and just put it'll its effort put, into growing flowers. Yeah, it'll put... it. It'll put all its effort in generating the seed, the flowers, and, and all that stuff. Generally, they're smaller, the you know, shorter stature and stuff like that. But you know, when you talk about an indeterminate soybean plant, when it gets to a flowering time, it's still going to keep growing for a couple more weeks, even through the flowering period. So um, those are largely, our seed catalog is largely indeterminate okay. beans. And those are, you know, what I've experienced within my career is that indeterminate beans generally are higher yielding uh, because they, if you put more effort into biomass and chlorophyll production, you'll end up getting more beans out of it. And what you said there, I think, is maybe getting to the point of what I was curious about because, again, if you look at our catalog, I think a vast majority of our products are in that indeterminate category. And so most people are probably are used to that without knowing that that's what, that's what, it, what it going is, on. right? Yeah. <laughs> and so you see this in the catalog, and you say, well, now this is a category. There's these two types. What do I need? It's not been a topic of conversation because, again, within our catalog and probably throughout most of the industry, indeterminate is probably typically oh, the more common yeah, it's by uh, far growth type. So when it comes to determinate, what's the application or what's the idea for that use? Or is it just kind of happens? 
I think it's people that don't necessarily want lodgy, growthy plants because if you have a shorter stature being, you have less of a chance of lodging and items like that. Sure. So yeah, I, I think it's probably more driven around like agronomic performance okay. more than anything. So is it a is it a geography? I mean, does it matter based on geography? I wouldn't necessarily say that because I had a conversation with Chuck and he mentioned to me that. A few, quite a few years ago, people were down in Arkansas were saying that they needed determinate beans. Okay, they they only needed determinate beans. But then, you know, Bill Eby and and Harry came in and said, "Well, you you can grow indeterminate beans and they'll beat them." And they planted them down there, and now <laughs> now they plant them down there. So oh, it's like, okay. I I don't necessarily think it's a it's a geography thing. I think it's probably more of a preference. I would say. Well, and that's why I asked the question, because I wonder if that's stuck in my mind. I think maybe at one time, maybe there was this idea that as you move into, you know, maybe more the southern clim- climates, maybe that was a longstanding belief that maybe yeah. you needed that. And, and so it's interesting that we found that that's not necessarily the yeah. case. But it's pretty amazing some of the stuff that, you know, that I've heard from Bill and, and Chuck that, you know, they've proven people wrong. <laughs> like, oh, you know, they've come into new areas and say, "Well, this is how we do it," and they come, they bring in and sh- bring our products down there and show them that you know the Stein way, and we actually teach them something, you know, and yeah. it, it's pretty impressive. So, well, and the soybean is an amazing plant. Its yeah. flexibility and its utility is is really kind of unique in that respect too. So, well, that's interesting. I, I wanted to ask you about that. Another thing that I know I get questions about is in our catalog we have listings for what we call salt excluders and okay. salt includers. That's, I think, a much more recent addition to our book. I don't know, in the last five or six years maybe. I, I might be forgetting, but uh, certainly hasn't been there forever. Curious if you speak a little bit about just what that is, I guess, because we do get questions, people saying, I haven't I didn't, haven't heard of this yeah. before, so now do I need to be worried about this? What does this yeah. do? So I guess speak a little about that. So with Stein being a nationally driven company, you know, we want widespread performing genetics. On a national level, I wouldn't say people need to worry about it too much. What a salt includer and excluder is, is essentially a gene within the genome of a soybean plant that has the ability to exude high salinity soils and not have the high salt levels affect the plant performance. And so... You know, I, I actually haven't been in too high experience with this, but you know, from what I was told that, you know, a lot of people down in in this in the south have high salt soil contents down there. And so it, it was mainly driven driven around them. Okay. But now there's been papers published and people talking that they think that it could work on IDC fields in the north. It's just a gene that's put in our portfolio that we can say, hey, it's there, it's not there. and Yeah. So ultimately, once again, like all these things, we're not picking a product because it is excluder oh, includer. It's simply reporting the information as it is. And it sounds to me like, you know, again, if that's something that, that a grower finds or thinks is important to them, yeah. they can look at that as an option. Right. But again, like you said, the jury may be out. Maybe uh, maybe there are other avenues or other things as we continue with breeding new material that maybe it becomes less relevant or more relevant depending on how the genetics flow. Right. 
it's pretty interesting, and like you said, it's it's so far low on the totem pole <laughs> from a selection criteria standpoint that from an R&D group, we don't really talk about it too much. Well, like I said, I think sometimes when we, especially when we have some sort of a score that we maybe haven't always had, and then we add it, yeah. I think that sometimes creates this sort of idea in the grower's mind, like, oh, well, is this something I have to worry about? Because yeah. obviously you put a score on it. Is that is that important? And so yeah. <laughs> that's kind of wanted, wanted to ask you about that. And so, again, if it's something a grower thinks is important based on their own research, then at least we provide that information so they can make that Yeah, and if, if you have any more questions about it or our products with the salt in- includer, excluder, you know, don't be afraid to ask your local ISR, you know, and have a conversation about it. So... It's always worth a discussion. Yep. So I guess I wanted to ask you a little bit, you know, again, we've talked about this process of how we go through deriving those scores and and, and the soybean research team does a great job of kind of compiling all this information and then giving it to the sales group so we can disseminate that information to our growers. As growers are looking at what they are going to want to plant next year, are there any... Any things they need to be mindful of or thinking about as they look at that, look at that catalog, you know, that national catalog that has all the products and all the scores. What, are, you know, what recommendations do you have about how they start to look at what's in front of them? I always go back to the yield. You know, when you look at the percent trends that are put on there, you know, pay attention to those because those are the highest performing ones and they're proven against, you know, especially when you have the EG products that are coming out. All the new stuff is put out for a reason. And that that reason is because it's proven itself for over three years of testing. Yeah. You know, when we go through our yield testing program, when it gets commercialized, it's not done. <laughs> so <laughs> so, you know, when you get see new products out on the market and you see new products in our catalog, they're there for a reason. And it's because they've proven themselves and they've beaten out stuff that's been substituted out. And so it's way better than anything that's ever it's way better than than what was taken off of of the catalog from the previous year. And so I, you know, I think you mentioned before that, you know, in the past people have really been concerned or I wouldn't necessarily say dis like they haven't been happy that we've taken stuff off of the catalog because they get to know it very well. But it's because that it's proven itself and it's beaten that other stuff out of out of the lineup. So, <laughs> well, one of the inter- yeah. So, one of the interesting side stories about that is, like you said, you know, growers get used to certain products, right? They yeah. know them by name, and so it is a little bit of a struggle sometimes when a product that they've had really good success with goes away. Yeah, and I respect that, and I understand that. That's frustrating for them, and but. But hopefully they understand that this whole system is built on the idea that this is an enormous pipeline of material and there's something better coming right behind that thing that we just put out. Yeah. And so for them to be, and how I know that to be true is it's interesting, we see this sort of delineation between, you know, let's just say your average customer who may say, yeah, you know, oh, I just planted that. Now you're telling me it's discontinued. Like, what are you guys doing, you know? Yeah. (laughs) And And then on the other side, we have a great group of customers who maybe seed growers are actually growing seed stock for Stein. And those yeah. are the ones that are usually saying, Oh uh, man, you, you gave this? that me, you <laughs> gave me that last year. I, I, don't give me that. You know, there's gotta be something new. What's, what's better than this? I mean, there's, you know, so they almost get frustrated if there's not something they haven't seen before. Right. So that tells me that's sort of someone who's 
discipled, right? They become oh, yeah. like, they've been oh, a part of the system. Yeah, I get yeah. it. I get it now. You know, the newer the newer stuff is better. And so uh so I think that's something that certainly is being overcome over the years. It's it's not what it used to be. But I know that's a struggle to ask sometimes a, a customer to plant something sight unseen. Yeah. It places a lot of trust in the system. Yeah. Right? They're saying I have to trust that the system is is doing what I want to do. Yeah. And the other thing I'd say is, you know, for those growers who are interested, who who really are saying, well, I get it, you know, this product scores really well, but I really would like to know what kind of experience has happened in a more localized area. Yep. Uh, they can certainly reach out to their sales representative. Right. Chances are their ISR knows where that seed was grown, so they could say, hey, these are products that have been grown locally that, that the growers themselves have had good success with. Or they may say, you know, we've had, we had an elite plot yeah. in this area, and I'm not going to share a lot about local data because that's yeah. not what we do, but I can tell you it did really well in this particular neck of the woods. So certainly the ISR can help them fill in the blanks if they're not super familiar with the product or, or need a little more familiarity. And also, that's one of the great things about the agronomy team, having those product development plots. That's you know That was started this year, is that they take those newly released, well, I shouldn't say they're released just yet, but they're next year releases, but it allows them to put that in certain regions within an ISR's region and gain experience and knowledge with it. So that way, even after our elite tests are done, the ISRs, the regional sales agronomists, and the technical agronomists have seen these products that have been replaced, and they're they're knowledgeable about them. So that's one of the benefits of the product development plots that I think is is highly valuable. Yeah, yeah, that's great. We're looking forward to having the product development plots because you're right. That's a lot of. I mean, looking at the data that's being gathered from the agronomy side. Yeah, tremendous amount of data points for all of those products. And like you said, they're the sort of they're they're not commercial yet, but they're the class that's coming up, right? Yeah. The next class through the door, and so that should help give us even more visibility or more data points to be able to share with those growers, so they maybe are even more comfortable, more comfortable with their yeah. decision making process. For sure. Well, Tyler, appreciate you coming on the podcast today talking about the process that Stein goes through to develop soybean scores. Those are so important for us to be able to help our growers develop their portfolio of products that they're going to be planting in the coming years. So the work that the soybean research team does and the work that you do are very valued in helping us tell the story of Stein and the product. So appreciate you coming on the podcast today. Yeah, of course. It was fun. (laughs) Well, that's our time for today. I'd like to thank our guests and our listeners for joining us for another episode of the Stein Seedcast. We'll be back again soon with more expert interviews and insights about all things Stein. And to never miss an episode, subscribe to the Stein Seedcast wherever podcasts are found. Subscribe to the Stein Seedcast wherever